For Tandem Launch, I'm Jermaine Murray, and this is The Launch, a podcast all about tech startups. Today, Airy3D has been revolutionizing the imaging industry by applying depth, and they've done a really good job of this. So much so that industry vet Paul Gallagher was entranced from the first time he saw this technology. A mixture of imaging, depth, and new adventures? He couldn't wait. This is his story. We were uh, incubated at Tandem Launch. Uh, the, the, the founders identified depth as a very significant pain point for imaging. Uh, to implement depth uh, in a conventional way is uh, multiple components. It's expensive. There's a lot of processing power required. And it doesn't work well in a lot of situations. And uh, they did research and they came up with a technology to uh, add directly to the image sensor uh, to enable a single image sensor to be able to uh, see uh, both the 2D image and depth simultaneously. When you first heard about this technology, you know, what were your thoughts? What, what made you excited in the first place? Um, I've been in imaging for my whole career and I've seen many of the depth imaging approaches crash and burn or be limited in their adoption. And in looking into what Airy3D has done, I found it very exciting um, that it's a, a very straightforward implementation, a minimal impact on the, uh, the ecosystem, on uh, the, the way things are currently done, which is usually a big hurdle for adoption. Uh, and that, you know, for the, the set of applications uh, and the ranges that it's designed for, it works really well. Amazing. So why is depth everything? You know, you, you said that word quite a bit, and I know that uh, there's a bit of emphasis, but but why was it important for uh, Aerie to uh, have depth as such a, a huge part of uh, their product and their makeup? Well, let me let me put it this way. How many single-eyed mammals do you know? Right? There's a reason everyone has two eyes. It's so that you need depth. Um, there's an incredible amount of information coming into your eyes or into a camera. It's entirely too much to process and make sense of uh, for your brain, right? And so your brain does a whole bunch of tricks to minimize uh, how much data it's actually getting. Um, those tricks aren't really available for most of the uh, traditional camera technologies. And so you need to be able to understand what's background, what's foreground, is that thing moving, moving towards me or moving away from me, moving adjacent to me? Uh, all of these things matter as we're moving more and more from a camera for taking pretty pictures to a camera that's a data source, right? So you're looking at automotive and you're looking at biometric identification uh, and, and applications like this where I'm, I'm not trying to make this an image that a person looks at and says, wow, that's pretty, or woo, that's terrible. Uh, what instead is, is this data is feeding right into a processor and the processor is making decisions, right? It's the same way your eye and brain work. Well, the data overwhelms, the 2D data just overwhelms. It's being able to filter. I don't care about anything more than two meters away or, or uh, I only care about people and being able to identify them and then identify which ones you care about um, is, is uh, significant as, as the imaging space moves more towards imaging imagers as sensing devices as opposed to taking pretty pictures how is that kind of materialized like in terms of like your product you know i would i as an average joe be affected by um if be affected or would i cross paths with uh, a, uh an airy 3d product um we're not out in the market yet 
Uh, we expect to be uh, launching into the market late this year and early next year. Uh, so today, no. But right now, you're familiar with uh, some of the higher end uh, flagship products that can do uh, face ID with depth. Um, those are expensive. That's a very expensive uh, set of components. It increases the size of the notch uh, and it's it very limited in what it can do. Um, and it's expensive enough that it would be, it's going to be very difficult for that to propagate down into the mainstream categories, right? Yeah, if you're spending $1,200 for a phone, I can absorb that cost uh, as the OEM. But if that phone is a few hundred to you know several hundred dollars, that cost is entirely too high. Our technology fits on the current camera that you have in your phone. And so that the cost, the increase in cost is, is a, you know, a percentage of what you'd be looking at for any of the current techniques being used in phones. So if let's say we uh, were able to put that into my phone, how does it affect me when I'm on vacation? I'm trying to take uh, a picture, um, you know, of the view or of the scene in front of me. So, um, you know, we're targeting uh, the front facing camera first. Uh, so it'd be more, how would it affect you when you're taking a selfie? So, um, right. So a couple different ways this could be implemented. One is biometric identification, right? You, you pick the phone up, it recognizes you and lets you in right away. Uh, so if you are on vacation and your hands are all sticky from just having an ice cream, you don't have to actually touch the phone, uh, to, you know, okay, I'm going to take a selfie. So, you know, I turn my back on the Eiffel tower and, um, I, I go and I take a selfie and then I look and somebody photobombed it. Well, because we're providing depth, we can give you, you know, we can give you what's called bokeh effects. And so that you can go in with your finger and you can select regions on the scene to be blurred, right? So if you wanted a, a you know, a, a, an artistic effect where you, you took a selfie and you want yourself to be in focus and everything be slightly blurred behind you. So people are paying attention to you as opposed to the Eiffel Tower. Um, you can do that. Or in the case where somebody photobombed you, you know, as opposed to an optical bokeh effect, uh, you can actually have the center region be blurred. So you would be in focus and the Eiffel Tower would be in focus, but the person in the middle would be blurred. Um, and additionally, you can do what we're referring to as world-facing selfies, right? So if you think about it, the selfie camera is really made for near-field capture, right? It's not made for capturing, you know, uh, large uh, scenes that are far away. Well, what if your primary camera, your, your world-facing camera, was taking the picture of the background while simultaneously the front-facing camera was taking the picture of you? This way, you're looking at whatever you want in the scene, you can make sure it's framed up right. The front camera, because we have depth, we can isolate you from the rest of the, the, the scene from the front camera and embed you right into the world facing camera stream. And so then one, you're not going to, you're not, no one's going to photobomb you because you'll see them Two, you're not going to fall into the grand Canyon, right? Which has happened. People taking selfies step back too far and fall off a cliff, right? Because you're going to see it in front of you. So these are just some of the, the, the more basic application sets that, that could be coming. Would I, if, I, if I were to say, if I were to say this kind of reminds me of uh, like a, panor a panorama, panoramic view, uh, almost in the sense when you, when you're taking the picture and just being able to like see the surrounding area around you, uh, would that be like a, an accurate uh, comparison? Um, not really, because you're not really engaging uh, anything in the panoramic view, right? They're just, you know, you're, you're moving the phone through a scene and it's just stitching. Right. And, and, um, 
you know, the reality is if you have depth, you can actually get better panorama images because you're going to get better XYZ position. Um, this is what we're talking about here is by providing depth, we're enabling you to interact with the image, right? So with your, you don't have to go take the picture, bring it home, load up Photoshop and start doing, you know, an hour and a half of editing with your fingers on your phone. I can isolate objects. I can change the background. I can give you a starry night kind of a background with the background you have. Just make it all blurred, but have you not be blurred, right? And very sharp edges between you and the backgrounds. Um, this is some of the techniques and some of the things that, that our technology will enable. Amazing. So it seems like there's this like Air, Air 3D exists within this like interesting interconnectivity between hardware, software, sensors, uh, imaging, embedded imaging. Um, so how do you all make work? Like how do, what's the what's the spin on, on the technology here? So we are a hardware enabled software company. Um, we, we design this. Uh, we design a, a grading uh, that goes on top of the image sensor. And this grading uh, causes the light to, uh, as it's coming into the sensor, to be diffracted uh, and then have create its own interference patterns uh, as they're absorbed, in, as, as the energy is absorbed in the, the pixels. Um, so now your, your pixels, um, you know, the data from your pixels isn't exactly what the scene looks like. It's not the raw traditional data. So we do our, we do, as the data comes in off the camera, we process it. We process it to generate two things. First, we correct all of the optical distortion we created. And we send that data to the traditional color processing core that's on the, the, the chip. Uh, in parallel, we take all of that, that data that we, uh, that we created, this interference information, and we use that to generate the depth map. And so you're getting your traditional 2D image coming through the traditional structure and infrastructure of your system, uh, uh, while simultaneously we're, we're providing the depth, uh, the depth data. Interesting. Now, uh, you know, it's you really revolutionized how Air 3D approached their product channel strategy. Um, can you give us some insight on how you did that and how you were able to get like a, a win-win deal? Sure. Um, you know, the, the the fundamental approach would have been okay. We we have to work with the image sensor company to enable this grading to be put on the on the sensor. And the original idea was to license the software to the image sensor company. Um, however, you need to know how your market works and how your ecosystems work. Um, and so if you look at that, the, the image sensor company is a hardware company. They sell only hardware. They don't sell software and they sell it. You know, if you look at the, uh, the OEMs they sell to, the OEMs have groups of, of buyers, buyers that buy component, that buy semiconductor components, buyers that buy infrastructure systems, um, and buyers that buy software. So the sensor company sells to the buyer that buys components, and the buyer who buys components buys on cost. So the software, the value of, of pulling this information out is something that over time would be minimized to nothing because the people selling it don't understand the value and the people buying it don't care about it. They just say, you know, you added, you know, you added this much cost, we'll pay you this much more, not taking into account the value play. And so that was the original model. The, the model that uh, we, we 
we've converted to is, um, and, and the other problem then is the the sensor company is taking a lot more risk, right? They're they're going to have to go out and sell the whole thing. They don't know how to. They don't have people who sell software on typically in their organizations, and it's a much more complex sell for them. So by changing the model and saying, you know, we license the uh, the design, the grading design, this um, this diffraction grading design, to the sensor company for little to no cost. Well, we license the software to the OEM and that's our revenue generation, it does a few things. It cleans up the channel so that the sensor company is selling on hardware, which is what they know how to do, and the buyers are buying on hardware, which they know how to do. Um, well, simultaneously, we're selling software to the OEM directly because we have to, even if we sold the software to the sensor company, we'd still have to get involved in terms of porting it onto their platform. Right? So this way, we're directly involved. The other significant difference is we removed the the step between us and the paying customer, right? So if we license to the sensor company, they then license the the, the chip and and uh, sub license our technology up. We don't get to uh, have an engagement with the with the OEM by us licensing directly. Uh, to the OEM, we have a direct engagement. We get direct feedback. We can make direct implement uh, modifications and, and support. The other methodology would be if there's a problem, the the OEM is going to go to the sensor company. The sensor company is going to have to come to us, and then we're going to have to go back to the sensor company with the results, and they're going to have to go back up. It was just too complex, right? And so, you know, part of an important part of of uh, you know, if you're looking at at you know how you're going to position and 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 everything, it's not just what value you bring, it's how how, what's the best way for that to be adopted within the channel? Interesting. So I, I, can you tell us how that conversation went in order to get uh, the rest of your team to kind of get on board with shifting, uh, you know, product strategy and how and how they're they're trying to attract their customer base? You know, I, I, I know that as when you're working in in this type of space, a lot of sometimes people get really attached to the way things are done and, and the work, um, you know. So what was your strategy like? What was your thought process? going in how did you navigate that conversation what were your points you know how did you get them to come over to your side so first you know i brought up the issue related to support and the issue related to that we are a step removed from the paying customer right and that that means we're, there's a lot of information we will never know and never get and so as we start to plan forward-looking products we are not necessarily getting the right information we're getting information that's been filtered uh secondly I walked, uh, you know, uh, the team back through other implementations that tried this approach and how it failed, right? How, how the implementations just never got to a point where, uh, you know, they could raise enough revenue to be viable uh, and, and sustainable, uh, as well as, um, you know, not being able to adapt the technology because they weren't getting the feedback. And third and most important, I ran through the financial models. So through the financial models, if you pay the if you pay a component, you know, if you license to a component level company, they are going to increase their price relative to the cost. Right? If their cost goes up, they're going to increase their price, but also they're going to increase the margin. Right. So if they're if they're doing a 50 percent margin, they're still going to do a 50 percent margin. Right. And then they sell up to an integrator and then the integrator is now paying more for the sensor. So the integrator is going to charge more to the OEM as well. And they're going to also increase their margin. So you're going to start getting margin stacking up through the system. And, and when you get to the OEM, they have a value 
point. They say, we believe it's worth this much. Well, the sensor company is getting margin on top of that. The, 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 the integrator is getting margin on top of that. And that means that's money that's coming right out of the, the licensee's pocket. So that if we were licensing to the sensor company, that margin stacking amount would come right out of what we could charge. So you look at those three, one, it's, it's, it's impactful to the channel. It's going to slow down adoption. You're going to be denied direct access to the customer. Uh, and uh, on top of all of that, you've got, you know, financial issues and there's his history of that approach being tried and technologies being launched. And then very quickly, um, the, the, the license value rent is zero. Seems like there's like a lot of uh, relationship uh, balancing and relationship uh, managing here, you know, uh, between the OEMs and the customers. Uh, how how do you have like a, 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 a specific part of your team that juggles those relations or is it something that everybody on board kind of uh, takes the initiative to handle? So um, from an initiative perspective, it's driven, you know, the, the, the channel is, uh, is driven through marketing, right? The channel engagements are driven through marketing. Uh, the customer engagements are driven through sales. So marketing takes on all of the sensor partners, the integrators, the uh, software platform, you know, the, the, the application processor platforms or whatever processing platform we're working with and, and, and is building those relationships. In parallel, we're working with the, um, the OEMs. Uh, on the sales side. And a lot of times what happens is the OEM has a preferred uh, sensor partner or a preferred integrator. Now, fortuitously, mm-hmm. our, our technology will work with pretty much anyone's image sensors. So there isn't an issue of compatibility. It's just starting that relationship and, and you know, having the OEM go talk to the sensor partner and say, hey, I want to adopt this and I want you to put it on this sensor, that certainly simplifies the channel engagement. How's COVID affected your business? Um, Well, we were just uh, about to start uh, sampling evaluation kits. Uh, when all of this happened. Uh, so we we went and, and sampled them, but we weren't able to be there on the bring up and help that initial bring up. So it's uh, slowed down the evaluation phase uh, because we weren't able to you know help bring up and be there for, for a couple of days to, to get through questions and things like that. Um, within the within the organization itself, you know we are, a hardware enabled software company. So, uh, you know, we can work, uh, you know, a lot of the work can be done from home using some of the, uh, you know, remote uh, support tools. Um, I would say the most, the other significant is um, being able to get in our lab and take measurements. So if a customer comes back and says, well, you know, we're getting this, right? Being able to try to duplicate that has been problematic. Um, because very few people have optics labs in their home. So, um, you know, but but we we've managed to work through it. We've had uh, several uh, target OEMs uh, duplicate our results, uh, and so we're we're proceeding along the evaluation phase right now. It's just taking longer than we had initially hoped. For anyone that's listening to this program, um, and a lot of our audience members, they they range from just working in startups to having aspirations of uh, pursuing their own startups. With what you're experiencing right now in COVID-19, what kind of advice would you give them, uh, you know, especially with with regards to uh, just trying to identify the right 
product delivery strategy with, and relationship building with their customers? You know, in your opinion, from your experience, you know, what, what would that look like as somebody that's on fresher ground? So, I mean, if you're looking at this, the, the fundamental is, is, you know, you have to be um, robust enough to send your, your early units out without you. Right. So that means you have to have done better, more testing, better testing. You need to understand how your customer is going to be testing the device. Uh, and if, you know, you're sending an early demo out and it has certain issues with it, make sure the customer knows. Right. Don't don't leave it for them to find out. Right. Say, OK, you know, of the five features we talked about, three are in are in good condition Two, you may see some results that are strange. And we're working on these and we'll get you updates uh, in this time frame. Um, so it's a matter of, of uh, setting the right expectations uh, from the beginning. It's a matter of understanding that, you know, your, your platform needs to be robust enough where you may not be able to accompany it. Uh, for initial bring up and initial testing by the customer. Uh, and it's find out which are the best communication techniques uh, or, or infrastructure. Right? One of the things we run into quite a bit is uh, there's a lot of companies uh, you know, that don't use certain file sharing systems or any file sharing systems. So you know, some of our data is our, our images and videos. These are huge blocks of data, way too big to send on an email. So finding, identifying those, those uh, capabilities and those uh, file sharing techniques that would be acceptable to a large corporation that has you know, very serious uh, concerns on, on uh, data uh, control. Uh, so you, you need to be able to be uh, uh, able to work within these different systems and infrastructures uh, and, and understand just because you put something in in a, in a in a file sharing system doesn't mean that they can get to it. Amazing. And Paul, uh, last question before before we wrap up, um, what piece of advice would you uh, you give to um, sorry, if there's one thing is there if there's one thing that you would want our listeners uh, to know from straight from Paul Gallagher's mouth, what would that look like? What would that be? I would say um, really understand your customers pain points, um, really understand how the channel is works and really understand how you fit within not only solving the customer's pain point, but how you fit within the channel. Every place you, you uh, cause friction in the channel is just makes it that much harder for your technology to be adopted. And so part of the, the design and part of the considerations for your design need to be, how can I minimize the amount of friction to take this technology to market, especially for a startup? On the next episode of The Launch, we explore parenthood, robots, and investing with C2RO's founder, Sude. That the era is going to be big data era. And, and I had in mind and I had a vision that uh, my, my this startup, because I had a previous startup in, uh, in back then on more business uh, processes and service company. This one, I knew that I want to build a product company and I and it was around well, how I can actually work in the data analytics piece using cloud and the power of artificial intelligence. 